That last old hymn that we just sang is very fitting for the exposition that I believe the Spirit of God would have me deliver to you this morning. So will you take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 2. We are going to examine the first seven verses this morning. And I've entitled my discourse to you, When Love for Christ grows cold. And I pray that we will all examine our hearts in light of this. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary but I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In a 1948 speech to the House of Commons, Sir Winston Churchill said, quote, Those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And this is certainly true in the realm of political policies as well as international affairs. We see this constantly in the realm of sinful men, but it is also true in the church. We see this manifested in a progressive demise of five churches that are listed among seven in Revelation 2 through 3. A progression that ultimately ends in a church that is basically a Christian church in name only, totally apostate. A progression that will end in apostasy as certainly as fentanyl will end in death. And the progressive sins that destroy those churches will also, I might add, destroy your marriage and destroy your family. Let me give you the context. The Lord Jesus Christ has appeared to his beloved apostle John, who was incarcerated in a penal colony on the volcanic isle of Patmos. And there he 
commanded him to deliver a message to seven prominent churches on the mainland. The primary and stated purpose of these letters to the seven churches is to issue a warning to them because of specific sins that characterize these people. And I might add that while he was focusing on these churches specifically, he's also speaking to all churches that have existed perennially down through redemptive history. So each church is representative not only of the churches of the first century, but of every church in every church age. Two of the churches, as you may recall, the church at Smyrna and the church at Philadelphia were faithful, they were pure, and there was no rebuke for them. The Lord praised them. But four out of the seven were in varying stages of deterioration. The church at Ephesus, then Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis. And the last church, the church of Laodicea, was completely dead. And what's particularly noteworthy is that each of the first four churches the Lord rebukes has a decreasing number of believers attending these churches. And we see this today. Until finally... The church at Laodicea is totally apostate, and there's virtually no believers in it. For that reason, he says in chapter 3, beginning in verse 17, regarding the church at Laodicea, that you basically make me vomit. I will spew you out out of my mouth. And here's why. You say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. But he says... You do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, he went on to say in verse 20. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Like the four stages of cancer that we are are all familiar with that left untreatedly will progressively lead to death. Each primary sin in these churches, the sins that the Lord rebuked, are basically one more stage that leads to spiritual death in a church. Just in general, Ephesus, which was the mother church, by the way, of all of the others, unwittingly abandoned their first love for Christ. That's stage one of the cancer. In verse five, it says, therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. So he calls them to repentance, you might say, because of their loveless orthodoxy. The church of Pergamum, tolerated false teachers that compromised with the culture, teachers that ignored the biblical warnings against worldliness. Worldliness is the second stage. First you lose your love for Christ, then you begin to embrace the things of the world and you start looking and acting and talking like the world. Verse 16 then says, therefore repent or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. 
The church of Thyatira went even further. If we study it, we will see that they tolerated a woman false teacher who called herself a prophetess, causing them to descend even further into the depths of satanic deception that led to their participation in sexual immorality. That's stage three. Begins with loveless orthodoxy, it moves to worldliness, and then it begins to embrace sexual immorality. Verse 21, we read, I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Next was the church at Sardis. And though it had an outward reputation of being a church that's really alive, really on fire, yet the Lord Jesus Christ said, quote, you are dead. Though they did have a few people, according to verse 4 of chapter 3, he says, a few people who have not soiled their garments and walk with me. So they had some believers there, but primarily it was a church made up of ungodly, worldly, immoral heretics that had abandoned apostolic teachings, which is stage four. It begins with a loveless orthodoxy, it moves to worldliness, then to immorality, and then to complete heresy. People just believe things that are downright unbiblical, just stupid, satanic stuff. That's stage four. And there we read in chapter 3 his warning. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. And then the final church is the church at Laodicea. It was just thoroughly apostate, apostate. It's what the Lord called lukewarm, which, by the way, does not mean they were just mediocre Christians. That is an unbiblical concept that a lot of people fall into. It means they fit neither category, category of being hot, which was analogous to a true believer on fire for Christ, nor did they meet the description of being cold, one who completely rejected Christ. In other words, although they were unregenerate people, unsaved people, they did not openly reject Christ. They were hypocrites, pretenders that made a mockery of the gospel and made God want to vomit. That's stage five. A lukewarm Christian, dear friends, is no Christian at all. It is a Christless Christian, a person who is Christian in name only. It's like, for example, Roman Catholicism and other ostensibly Christian churches, institutional churches, woke churches, prosperity theology churches, liberal churches, and so forth. The Laodiceans were also a very financially prosperous group of people, but they were smug, self-righteous hypocrites, and they were depraved, as lost as any atheist. In verse 19 of chapter 3, we read, Be zealous, be zealous and repent, the Lord says. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. 
Now, even someone who knows very little of history in the United States of America will have to agree that this has been the progression of evangelicalism here in our country. Many of the early pilgrims were God-fearing Puritans. They entered into the United States of America wanting to serve Christ, even as we would here today. In fact, the United States of America is a product of the Protestant Reformation. These original people, most of them had a fervent love for Christ that characterized most of the early settlers. And many others joined together with them as the country grew, as they established our once great republic. But over time, a loveless orthodoxy began to set in to Christianity. Then the worldliness, and we've seen that, for example, in evangelical pragmatism, where you've got to become like the world in order to win it, which is totally unbiblical. And then the immorality sets in. As we see today, churches embracing all of the woke insanity, the LGBTQ, WXYZ, and on and on it goes stuff. They embrace heresy, and they become apostate in Ichabod, which means the glory has departed, is written across the doorway of their church, and they don't even see it. They are dead churches that reject sound doctrine and separation from the world. And this depicts a Christless Christianity. You know, Harvard and Yale were originally founded by the Puritans to train godly men to preach the gospel. And if you look back at what they believed, you would see a mirror of what we have here at Calvary Bible Church. Princeton University was founded by great godly Presbyterian ministers. In fact, the Princeton crest still says, De sub numine vigit, which means in Latin, under God she flourishes. And yet today, all of those institutions are openly hostile to the gospel, to true Christianity. You look at what has happened in the Methodist denomination, the Lutherans, many of the Presbyterians, the Southern Baptists, many of which are now totally apostate. Living illustrations of self-deceived Laodicean phonies that nauseates God. I might make it real personal here. Look at some of the friends that we've all known that at one time seemed to have a love for Christ. But look where they are now. Today they can't be distinguished from the world that hates them. Progressive Christian movements today have been amalgamating with the new religion of wokeness which is another gospel, dear friends, one that cannot save, one that damns both those that preach it and those that believe it, according to Galatians 1. Yet this is the gospel that many evangelical churches are now preaching. Sometimes I find myself like King David, who lamented over the the wickedness of the theocratic kingdom in his day and his frustration to do anything about it. And in Psalm 11, he says... When the foundation is destroyed, what can the righteous do? (laughs) It's like, what are we going to do here? But then he went on to answer his own question. 
And this is what we must remember beginning in verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. Don't despair. He's still in charge. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked and the one who loves violence. His soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Indeed, God is sovereign over all of the affairs of men. And in his perfect omniscience, he scrutinizes the affairs of both the wicked as well as the righteous. He is even ordained to allow evil to exist in his perfect universe through the voluntary choices of moral creatures that he might dramatically display his glory through his holiness, through his wrath, through his mercy, his grace, his love, and his power. So indeed, God is still in control. But dear friends, we would all do well to learn from history, the history of what has happened to the church down through the years. But we don't go to history for our textbook. We go to the Word of God, as we will do this morning. Indeed, as Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. So, before we look at the text closely, I want to give you a little historical context. Ephesus was a magnificent city in the first century. There were about 250 to 500,000 people located in that city at the mouth of the Caister River which is about three miles from the coast. By the way, this would be in, in, let's see, western modern Turkey. In fact, if you were to look over in Greece at Athens and go straight across uh, east to Turkey, that's where Ephesus would be if it were still there today. Highways connected that city to all of the major interior cities, and commercially, it was one of the largest of all the cities in the Roman province of Asia. It was considered by the Romans to be what they called a free city. Um, That was granted to a city, that status, um, because of their fidelity to the empire. And so they allowed them the opportunity to govern themselves, but still under the supervision of Roman oversight. Uh, They were big on sports there. They had their own coliseum. People loved to watch the annual athletic games in particular. The theater that was there held about 25,000 people. Its religious life centered, however, around the mystical cult worship of the Greek goddess Artemis, which was also, for the Romans, the goddess Diana. And the Temple of Artemis was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was 420 feet, 25 feet long, 220 feet wide, consisting of 120 columns, each of them donated by various kings. And the grotesque image of Artemis was, of course, prominent in the temple. It was a short, black, maybe you've seen it online, multi-breasted, a figure that supposedly had fallen from heaven. 
And not surprisingly, the temple was a place of gross immorality, uh, considered sacred acts of worship. They had temple prostitutes uh, who were considered priestesses. It was also filled with, with male um, priests and eunuchs and slaves with musicians and dancers that used their music to dance around in this frenzic, frenzied, ecstatic, hysterical forms of worship. And the, the, the uh, temple was also designated as a safe, protective asylum for prisoners, for, for criminals, even those that had escaped. Of course, that's just the kind of place, that's just the kind of place Satan wants to worship in, right? So that gives you a little feel for the temple there of Artemis. And one resident of Ephesus, the Greek philosopher Heraclitus, said this, quote, the morals of the temple were worse than the morals of beasts, for even promiscuous dogs do not mutilate each other, end quote. There was also a substantial Jewish population there in Ephesus. Romans allowed them uh, to build a synagogue there. Uh, Judaism at that time was legally protected by Rome, but Christianity was outlawed. Uh, you had to worship the emperor unless you were a Jew. And by the end of Emperor D Domitian's reign in the early 90s, the persecution against the church of Jesus Christ grew very strongly. It was a virulent hatred for Christianity. So this was Ephesus, the perfect place to go and plant a church, right? And that's exactly what Paul did at the close of his second missionary journey. He planted that church in about A.D. 52. And you will recall that there he, uh, after he left, he, he allowed Priscilla and Aquila to continue their ministry there. And then a great and mighty Old Testament preacher by the name of Apollos came in and ministered with them. And on Paul's third missionary journey, he returned to Ephesus and spent three years there helping to establish the church. And you will recall that all of the idol worshipers and the idol makers eventually ran him out of town. He was putting the idol makers out of business. And later, while a prisoner in Rome, Paul wrote them a letter and eventually left Timothy in charge of the church. And sometime after the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, the apostle John shows up to the church at Ephesus. He ministered there until he was exiled to Patmos. And it was in Ephesians that he wrote the Gospel of John, which was written some 50 years after he experienced that. And it was also there in Ephesus that he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So this was a significant, a prominent church in the ancient Christian world. And as I say, it was the mother church of all the rest. And to, th and to think that basically eight books of the New Testament came out of that church. You've got the Gospel of John. Um, you've got the book of Ephesians from the Apostle Paul. You've got First and Second Timothy, First, Second, and Third John, and then eventually Revelation on the Isle of Patmos. Moreover, Paul was serving in, at the church at Ephesus when he wrote First Corinthians. That gives you an idea of the prominence of that church. But Ephesus is nothing but ruins today. The silt of the Caister River uh, eventually destroyed the harbor. 
But worse yet, despite all of the opportunities, despite all of the valiant beginnings of the church at Ephesus, eventually the church disappeared. And the reason for its ultimate demise is stated in this letter to them. A letter that came from the Lord of the church. A letter written 30 years after Paul's ministry to them. Now, as we come to the text, again, context here in the text itself, after having seen the astounding spectacle of the glorified, ascended Lord of the church described in Revelation 1 uh, through 12 through 17, that caused John to fall at his feet like a dead man. John now obeys the command that was given to him in verse 19. Write, therefore, the things which you have seen, referring to the past vision of the glorified Christ that he has recorded now in verses 10 through 16. But then the next phrase says, and the things which are, which is a reference to the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, detailing the specific conditions of all churches that will exist until the events of chapter 4 and verse 1 begin to unfold. And then that leads us to the third phrase there, and the things which shall take place after these things. And that's, of course, a reference to the prophetic events detailed in chapters 4 through the rest of the book, chapter 22. Now, as we look at this for a few minutes this morning, I've divided this, this little letter into five simple parts. We're going to see the praise, the problem, the prescription, the punishment, and the promise. So look at verse 1 more closely. He says, to the angel, or it could be translated the messenger or the pastor of the church in Ephesus, write. And here the Lord is going to first remind them of his character and and figuratively identifies himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. In other words, the one who has the authority and control over all the churches. The word holds signifies the idea of safeguarding something. In other words, the one that safeguards his servants as the author of this letter. He goes on to say, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. In other words, it's the Lord of the church that moves among the churches whose lights are to shine forth as beacons of truth, of saving truth. The one who moves amongst his churches for the purpose of of purifying the church and enforcing his holy standards. Now, because of his constant vigil and because of his omniscience and his intimate involvement, he begins now with a word of praise. Verse 2, he says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance. I know, referring to progressive and complete knowledge, he has omniscient abilities that we can't even comprehend. So he's referring to his omniscient observation of all that goes on in them privately and as a church. 
Nothing escapes him. I know your deeds, referring to both those that are good and bad, and your toil, a term in Greek that refers to laboring to the point of exhaustion, and your perseverance. I find it interesting. He knows our deeds, and many of us have deeds, and he looks at that, he sees that, but I must say that few toil. It's one thing to have deeds, it's another thing to serve Christ to the point of exhaustion. And he sees that there are those there that do that. And he also sees their perseverance, that Greek term hupomone, referring to a courageous uh, willingness to patiently endure and to remain steadfast under spiritual conflict and persecution. Now remember, these people were were slandered. They were, they were called traitors. They were traitors to the state because they refused to say Caesar is Lord. They renounced the, the pantheon of Roman gods and instead they would say Jesus alone is Lord and in him alone is the only hope of salvation. They were accused of being cannibals because they ate flesh and drank blood and on and on it goes. By the way, down through history Martyrs have been murdered, not so much because of their faith for Christ, but because of some trumped-up charges against them, that they're child molesters, they're murderers, they're thieves, they're bigots, they're racists, they're traitors, and on and on it goes. And we see that flourishing in our own culture today. And I might add that we know very little of this kind of persecution, but friends, it is a tidal wave that's coming our way. Not because of our faith in Christ, but because we are considered narrow-minded. Because we are considered ignorant, arrogant, hate-mongers, homophobes, racists. Um, We believe that Christ is the only way and all other religions are false. Because that is true. And of course that triggers immediate hostility. We look at our government and we see that it is aggressively legislating unrighteousness and criminalizing righteousness. You just look at the blasphemous platform of the Democratic Party and it reads like a diatribe against all that God deems holy and just and righteous. America wants a kinder, gentler, more politically correct religion. Politically correct social gospel which does not have the power to save. But it does have the power to damn. When we start losing our jobs and our homes, and we start visiting our loved ones in prisons, then we will understand the meaning of hupomone, patient endurance. That's what he saw in them. Now again, back to the text. The word your there, that possessive pronoun in the original language is singular something the English is unable to express, which indicates that ultimately the Lord is addressing the pastor who is responsible for the spiritual life of the church that he is called a shepherd. But then also through the pastor, he's addressing the whole congregation. Now, notice the reason for their exhausting work and their perseverance in verse 2. He went on to say, I know that you cannot endure evil men And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. So obviously, this is a a very discerning church. 
And they've had qualified people like we would see in, in Ephesians 4.11, the pastor teachers that, that equip the saints to understand sound doctrine. Um, and as a result, according to Ephesians 4.14, we are no longer to be children, referring to one who does not talk but just babbles. We're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. So they weren't that way. Paul had warned them, you will recall in Acts 20, beginning in verse 28, to be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. He went on to say, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Scripture warns us about these kind of men and women. Jesus called them wolves in sheep's clothing. The reference there is that shepherds dress themselves with the garments of of sheep. And so the idea here is false shepherds pretend to be pastors. They deceive naive sheep into following them. But they're wolves that will devour them. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says, Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Folks, don't go looking to Washington, D.C. to see Satan. Don't go looking to Lower Broad to see Satan. Go to seminaries and pulpits. That's where you will find him most aggressively at work. Peter and Jude warned that these men will be deceptive, greedy, immoral, manipulative, exploiting people for money primarily. The Didache which was the oldest known document of church order and ethics, contained directives for instruction in worship and and ministry. And they warned about false apostles uh, in that day. And here's one of the quotes from that resource. Welcome every apostle on arriving as if he were the Lord, but he must not stay beyond one day. In case of necessity, however, the next day too. But if he stays three days, he's a false prophet. On departing, an apostle must not accept anything save sufficient food to carry him till his next lodging. If he asks for money, he is a false prophet. My, how things have changed. So the Ephesian pastor and his congregation are praised for their tireless labor in combating these deceivers for patiently enduring under all of the trying circumstances that they experienced in that day that tested them so severely. Down in verse 6, the Lord expands his commendation for their reaction to a specific group of people that had infiltrated the church. Notice what he says in verse 6. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we're uncertain who they really were, but a number of early church leaders described them as a licentious, antinomian, Gnostic sect. Uh, Gnosticism, people that thought they had the secret knowledge, and, 
antinomian means against the law. They, they, they didn't believe in law. It's the idea that since salvation is by grace, there's no need to obey the moral law of God. Sin has no bearing on the soul for salvation. You know, we're all messed up. We're all sinners. So, you know, just go ahead and indulge the flesh. That's what they believe. The Lord knows we're incarcerated in these fleshly bodies, so if it feels good, do it. By the way, this is very prominent even today. There's a movement which some call the hyper-grace movement. Uh, They consider me to be uh, a heretic uh, and others like me, that uh, I'm pietistic, that I'm legalistic, and all of these types of things. They reject uh, parochial, what they call parochial uh, fundamentalism, parochial means uh, narrow-minded um, moralism. They reject the lordship of Christ. They want you to focus on the indicatives, not the imperatives. And so this is what they had back then. Arrhenius considered them to, he was one of the early church fathers, considered the Nicolodians to Nicolod. Nicolaitans. I want to say Nickelodeon because of the thing on television. So when I say that, just say, you know, it's just an old man. Just, you know, we know what he's talking about. He considered the Nicolaitans to be a sect that followed one of the original seven men who served with Stephen in Acts 6, uh, a Jewish proselyte who apostatized named Nicholas of Antioch. Can't be sure about that, but that's one of the things that the ancient historians thought might be true. Uh, Hippolytus, a 2nd and 3rd century Roman Christian theologian, described Nicholas as a forerunner of Hymenaeus and Philetus. You remember those heretics? Paul condemned as heretics in 2 Timothy 2.17. Clement of Alexandria, who was a 2nd century church father, um, said, quote, They abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence. So... That's the type of people that the Ephesians rejected. Moreover, we have some conclusive evidence about what they taught mentioned in the letter to Pergamum where they are characterized as false teachers that deceived Christians and led them into immorality and other abominations. Well, regardless of who they are, God hated them and the church at Ephesus hated them as well and would not tolerate them. Unlike, by the way, the church at Pergamum that did tolerate them. So God praised the saints at Ephesus for their hard labor, their patient endurance under significant trials, their doctrinal discernment, their moral purity, their unwillingness to tolerate heretics. And in verse 3, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. My, what a faithful, commendable church, a God-honoring church. But you know a but's coming, right? Here it is in verse 4. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. So we go from the praise to number 2, the problem. You have left your first love. In Greek, it says you have left your love, the first love. The emphasis is on the first. You have left. A female in the original language, it means to abandon. It means to forsake, to lay aside, to depart. You have left your first love, that agape love. You've abandoned that, that selfless, sacrificial love that chooses to love without reciprocation. 
a love that initiates, not one that merely reciprocates. And first love speaks of the first passionate, fervent, chaste and pure love of the newly wedded bride. You've, you've left that. This has been forsaken. It's been replaced by something else. And by the way, this is what happens in many marriages. That passionate, self-sacrificing love somehow begins to wane. It begins to disappear. And before you know it, apathy and self-centeredness and hard-heartedness begins to set in. In Jeremiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 2, the Lord speaks of this kind of love that first characterized Israel, but then began to wane. There he says, I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals, your following after me in the wilderness through a land not sown. Thus says the Lord, in verse 5, what injustice did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty? Beginning in verse 12, he says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder, be very desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. And here they are. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Number two, to hew out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And folks, in many ways, this is exactly what happened in Ephesus. I want you to notice, it doesn't say they lost their first love, but they left their first love. It's the idea here that, that a departure had taken place from where they had been originally. What he's referring to here is their passionate love for Christ had been, now, had been replaced by, by some mechanical, cold orthodoxy. The fervent love was gone, and now they're going through the merchants of, motions of churchianity, if you will. Their service to the Lord had become a greater priority than their intimate fellowship with Him. Their labor had become emotionless. It had become perfunctory, obligatory, a duty rather than a desire, a habit more than a passion. What had been first no longer is even a consideration. Now, mind you, 40 years has elapsed from those first days. The second generation has taken over. And I'm beginning to think about this for this church as I age. The second generation takes over. Everything's been handed down to them. And it's easy, and we know this even in our culture, that typically the next generation doesn't appreciate what that first generation had to do. Most kids today have an entitlement mentality. And it can be easy for this to happen in our church like it did at Ephesus. And suddenly a cold fog of mechanical orthodoxy begins to envelop the congregation. And they don't even see it. They're going through the motions. They're doing all the church stuff just like we've done for years. But they've left their first love. Somewhere they forsake, they forsook what was once theirs, the passion that was once theirs. Now, in the church there at Ephesus, 
Some were perhaps unregenerate in the church. You're always going to have that in a church, tares amongst the wheat. But many were saved, but yet they didn't possess that same deep love for Christ, which also manifests itself in a deep love for their wives, their husbands, their children, for one another in the church. And certainly they don't have a love for the lost, the kind of love that was characteristic of the church when it was originally founded. And of course, when this happens in a church, just like in a family, bickering begins to develop. Gossip, slander, cliques develop. Preferences begin to be taken on like the status of a divine fiat. People start fighting over ridiculous things. Relationships deteriorate. And worst of all, that genuine love for the lost gradually disappears. Do you have a burden for the lost, dear friends? Does it keep you up at night? Why not? The original love for Christ was was passionate. They had an ardent zeal for Christ and for evangelism. You will recall in in Acts 19, the Ephesians, both Jews and Greeks, were running to Christ. And we see this described there. Verse 17, it said, the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Wow, that's the type of church you want to be a part of. It was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. I've been in churches in Russia where people will come and they will confess their sins publicly when they come to Christ. It's an amazing thing. That's why many Christians in Russia are called repenters, because that's what they do. That's what went on in the early church. Many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of all. Verse 20, it says, So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Folks, do you remember, those of you that are married, do you remember when you first fell in love with your spouse? She became the primary object of your love. She became, or he became, the center of gravity around which your life orbited. Yes, you loved Christ, but you could see that tangible expression of Christ's love for you in your spouse. Do you remember those days? It was that all-consuming thing. And then you eventually get married, and you begin to enjoy the oneness of marriage. You remember those days when you had that that joyful countenance on your face, your heart was overflowing with praise. But how easy it is for all of that to gradually disappear. You become sour and sullen, and your heart begins to grow cold. Perhaps it happens imperceptibly. The same thing can happen in the church. Your worship becomes boring, just kind of a lifeless duty. You just go through the motions of your faith without any passionate love for Christ. My friend, if that is you, the embers of your faith need to be fanned into flame that you might burn once again for Christ. He goes from the praise, the problem, to the prescription. The prescription, if I can give you three words, real simple, they all begin with R. Here's what you need to do if this is you. Repent, 
I'm sorry, remember, repent, and return. Remember, repent, and return. Verse 5, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Remember, in the original language, the grammar indicates that this is something you need to be constantly doing. It could be translated, keep on remembering from where you have fallen. Where you have fallen is in the perfect tense indicates that this was a decline that occurred over a considerable period of time, which I might add is further support for a later dating of Revelation, which I think refutes a lot of the heresy that's out there regarding Revelation. That's a subject for another time. I just wanted to throw that in for some of you that might be interested in that. But the idea here is that a passionate Pure love once flourished. It's like it flourished on this mountaintop. It was a magnificent thing, but now it has somehow fallen into a dark valley below. That's what has happened. Beloved, if this is you, you need to remember where you once were, what you once did. And like the prodigal son, you've lost your way and you need to return. You need to reflect upon the past when you first came to Christ. Do you all remember that? I hope you do. By the way, if this is foreign to you, you don't know Christ, okay? You don't know Christ. But for those of you that do, you remember that time when you, you just couldn't get enough? You, you, you were just so overwhelmed. You, you were just so thrilled with what Christ has done and you had a passion for his word, a passion for, for purity. You had a secret devotion to God, intimate fellowship with him. You would do anything to hear his voice through his word. You would study, you would love fellowship. You had a burden for the loss. You loved to be with the saints, but somewhere along the line, for many people, that wanes. That's what happened at Ephesus. I can vividly remember when I first fell in love with Nancy. I was 16. I knew then I'm going to marry that girl. That's the one God has for me. And she became, in many ways, the priority of my life. And I began to serve her. And by God's grace, that love has grown. I give him all of the glory. That love has grown stronger and stronger. For some of you that are struggling in your marriage, you need to remember back when you were first dating, when you first fell in love. You need to repent of those things that you've done to drift away and do the deeds you did at first. And the same thing you will recall when you first came to Christ. Remember those things. Do those things again. By the way, that's the purpose of communion when we come together at the Lord's table. We come to remember the Lord, right? That's what he asks us to do. So this is the Lord's admonishment to remember, repent, and return. Start walking by the Spirit. You won't carry out the desire of your flesh. Focus once again on those things that are to be the priorities. And then he moves from there to the punishment Verse 5, he says, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. You know, there's a sense of urgency here, right? Unless you decisively commit to make these change, 
changes. Unless you have a heart filled with action, he says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand out of its place. In other words, repent or else the flame of spirit empowerment that caused you to blaze forth in those early days is going to be extinguished. You're grieving the Holy Spirit. Next, you're going to quench the Spirit, and you're just going to cease to exist, and that's the punishment. And as a church, that's what happens. That's what happened to them. You remember the Temple of Jerusalem in Ezekiel 11? They had a visible presence. They had a place to meet. They were increasing in numbers, just like the early church, but the glory of the Lord had departed from them. And that's what happens to a lot of people. The lampstand of your power and your testimony is extinguished, and you're just a Christian in name only. I've seen this happen to so many churches. They become nothing more than a religious country club, a religious community center filled with pretend Christians playing church. You talk to those people and they have no power. They have no real testimony, no discernment, no holiness. And here's why. Somewhere along the line, assuming they love the Lord in the first place, that love waned. They forsook their love. And then little by little, worldliness begins to set in. They become more like the culture. Then immorality sets in. It's like there's nothing too immoral for them to watch or embrace. And then the next stage is heresy. They begin to believe things that are just blatantly false, just myths. And then finally, if they're genuinely not saved, they will fall into apostasy. Because they went out from us because they were never a part of us. But here's the promise, and oh, this is such a blessed thing as we close this morning. Verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's plural here, which indicates the the universal invitation and, and application of his words to all churches. He says, to him who overcomes, that's a reference to all Christians. That's a common phrase there in the book of Revelation. To him who overcomes, to all genuine believers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. You will recall the tree of life is first mentioned in Genesis 2.9. It was a tree that existed in the Garden of Eden. It was a, a tree that symbolized eternal life. That was the tree that Adam and Eve were forbidden to eat. But you will recall that when Adam and Eve sinned, God drove them out of the garden. And the text says in chapter 3 and verse 24, at the east of the Garden of Eden, God stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. And that, dear friends, was an act of mercy in that, in that it protected them from eating of that forbidden tree and thus living eternally in their fallen and cursed condition. And that earthly tree no longer exists, no doubt the flood destroyed it, but its heavenly counterpart does exist. It's the paradise of God, and the Lord describes that in Revelation 22, beginning in verse 2. It says, on either side of the river which flows from the throne of God was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were, the healing, were for the healing of the nations. 
And in verse 14, he says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Herein, beloved, is the promise that God gives to all the overcomers, all of us who truly know and love Christ by His grace. There is a paradise that awaits us, a place where we will dwell with God in a new heaven and a new earth. Oh, dear friends, we must hear and heed the warning to the church at Ephesus. Not just for this church, but you are the church. We are the church. Regrettably, that church failed to remember. They failed to repent and to return, and God removed their lampstand as he has countless churches down through history. Well, may we all examine our hearts, ask ourselves, have I left my first love? I want to close just by expressing my heart to you poetically. I think this was in your bulletin. Remembering when my heart was filled with covenant love and determined will, I can't explain nor dare defend the selfish drift of love that waned. Forgive me, Lord, for a heart grown cold, for selfish thoughts and sins so bold, for straying from my promised oath, a sore neglect of my betrothed, With longing heart and prodigal grief, my aching soul doth crave relief to feel once more your warm embrace and rejoice again in saving grace. May this be the expression of our hearts this day. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word and how it brings conviction to each of our hearts. Lord, it is so easy for us in our flesh to be distracted with all of the stuff of life and to be deceived even by our own flesh, not to mention the enemy, in such a way as to abandon that original love. Lord, I pray that you will rekindle all of that for us. I pray that you will fan the fame the the, the embers of our love, if indeed it has grown cold. And I pray that we might once again blaze forth for the glory of Christ and enjoy all that is ours in him. For it's in his name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.